Welcome to Carry the Fire, a podcast where we explore the big questions of life through the lens of the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm your host, Dustin Kensrew, and my hope is that through these conversations with people of diverse and divergent backgrounds and beliefs, we can glimpse the world anew through each other's unique perspectives. I drew a picture of Godzilla once, and my grandmother walked in the room. I wrote Godzilla on it, and I showed it to her, and she looked at it and said, there's only one God. It's just such a strange thing. I mean, it was maybe strange for me to draw Godzilla, but she was kind of crushing the spirit of a child by saying, God's what's important, and this doesn't have anything to do with God. I didn't have available to me. Spirit knows no division in that mm-hmm. moment. But I think an awful lot of what I'm bringing is to kind of reassert our fellow creatureliness into every conversation when people are getting high-minded over, uh, you know, whatever the topic might be. Hey, everybody. Today on the pod, we are joined by David Dark. David is an author and professor and probably my very favorite person on Twitter as he pokes and prods curiously, thoughtfully, and earnestly into our assumptions and hypocrisies. In our conversation, we talk about Marvel and myth, beloved community, robot soft exorcisms, and much more, including David's idea that, quote, religion is politics, is what we do, and how we speak, and the way that we think about other human beings. Let's dive in. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Most of the classes are, uh, well, I'm doing online classes and um, and having a good time in Nashville. Thanks for taking the time. I really Happy appreciate to. it. I feel like in a variety of ways, uh, listening to your witness, I think, was part of the inspiration of starting this podcast in the first place. And since I've started it, I've always had in my mind that I would love to have you on. So I'm oh, really fantastic. glad. Glad that it Explain worked so. out. I start off usually asking, um, what would give you a, uh, well, it's funny because so the, song, the the show is, you know, looking through the lenses of the, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Mm-hmm. But it made me think, because I talk about this a lot where, a, you know, it's helpful at times to pull those apart, but uh, in the end, you know, you can't really fully separate them. And it reminds me of uh, you talking about spirit knows no division, which we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. But I feel like this question I ask in the beginning is kind of getting at that. The sense of wonder, I think, is the no division of those yeah. things. And yeah. and so, uh, yeah, what, what would give you uh, a deep sense of wonder when you were growing up as a kid? Well, the very first thing that leaps to mind is a cover of the Incredible Hulk um, Mm. comic book. I was um, ill one day. Shall shall I just ramble? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. Um, I was ill. I could not read well, but my mother, when she went out to buy Gatorade or Coca-Cola or something, saw a copy of the Incredible Hulk. This would have been late 70s, probably. Mm-hmm. And um, she brought it over. And that I think of that as the beginning of a literacy of wonder for me, hmm. because it was a very strange um, cover of the Hulk holding a um, 
None Are So Blind was, was the title of mm-hmm. this particular issue. And I think the rest of that is None Are So Blind as They Who Will Not See or something like that. And um, he's holding a he's crying out in agony. He's holding a woman who looks like she's unconscious or dead. And um, he's standing in a cave. And you know, if you know Hulk stuff, that they've tried to bring him down. And somebody who was a friend of his has been injured in the process. And um, he's crying out. And that was just a weird image that um, got me going early on in looking for stories, looking for strange stories that somehow in their strangeness um, speaks to the strangeness of human experience. Hmm. And um, every day I'm looking for something weird um, or (laughs) odd or jarring. And I think that I can trace it back to that uh, comic book. You look at the image of the comic and you're like, what's going on here? What's the story? And um, that was it for me. The cartoonish, the grotesque, the colorful. And um, as a child who perhaps felt a little out of control a lot of the time, um, Hulk was kind of my creature. And um, that was a big one for me, being having the right comic book placed before me at the right time. Hmm. You're definitely not the the first who has gone to comic books when I've asked that. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's really making me feel like I missed out on something, not, not having been exposed to comics as a kid. Um, but I mean, I've come to appreciate them, uh, later on in life, like the, the power that's in that medium. Um, and I wonder if it's, like, I wonder if it's the closest thing we have to, uh, a more mythic simple storytelling like it's not it's not a giant novel that's hard to read it's it's this slim thing that is getting underneath all these things going on inside of us um yeah i'm curious what you what you think of uh the hulk in the marvel films if if you've yeah. dug that or not well all of it is lore and I, I think I'm often looking for lore of one kind or your, your word myth there helped me in that direction. Um, and I think that the Marvel Universe, though it doesn't always get it right, it seems, excuse me, the cinematic Marvel Universe, mm-hmm. I, I think that it's done pretty well of in the work of lifting up the witness of all of these strange, mostly men, unfortunately, who... Um, gave us these stories in the 60s and 70s. And um, every bit of that um, kind of an alternative world where many of our archetypes are getting worked out. Um, It's really worked for my kids and it's really worked for me. The Hulk is a hard one to do, um, but I think that Mark Ruffalo came through yeah, I'm I'm really happy with everything that's occurred um in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, I just I just like during this whole time I've been watching kind of all of them with my kids. I feel like I've been able to have so many interesting conversations with them based out of I mean, especially as it relates to, you know, patriotism, what is yeah. 
what does that actually look like when this is going on? And um, yes. I, I think that they, there's a lot of, a lot of nuance packed in underneath, you know, mm-hmm. explosions and, and all that. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like they, they get uh, ragged on quite a bit by, I don't know, a, a fancier mm-hmm. <laughs> type of uh, reviewer, but um, I, I dig them. Well, yeah, Tony Stark hoping that there's a technological solution um, to every problem. And mm-hmm. uh, that's Iron Man, if anybody doesn't know that. And Steve Rogers, Captain America, always going <clears throat> back to the question of what human beings owe each other. And um, those two being in conflict, um, when they're dealing with the big one, Thanos, who has a kind of, uh, in our own day, there are those who are responding to the pandemic by saying, you know, some are just going to have to die in order mm-hmm. to uh, keep our economy going. That's a Thanos position in a lot of ways, yeah. where it's a sense of scarcity and um, it's time for some human sacrifice. So it could be that Thanos, Captain America, Iron Man, that that tradition of um, sorting through ultimate questions is every bit, will ultimately be every bit as alive as Greek mythology and the Bible and Shakespeare and these other things. And it's and it's managed to cross generations where families are getting together and watching Ant-Man and thinking these things through. Yeah, and it's also fascinating that it's become so center stage when comics for a long time were very much at the periphery. Yes. And it's now this thing that is absolutely in the center of culture, which I think is... I don't know exactly what's behind all of that, but you see it moving that direction in a bunch of different ways. Uh, I've been seeing it with kind of the rise of uh, Dungeons and Dragons Mm -hmm. being very prominent now. And I never got to play that growing up. And now I'm like leading a campaign for my kids and it's like my favorite thing ever. Um, But also was super on the periphery and now uh, is becoming much more accepted. And I've, feel like i don't there's a lot of good things coming out of that that motion but i haven't thought enough about it to if we let pop culture be all popular culture that which has been popularly cultivated to take it back to my comic book and D, pop culture saves us i think by drawing us into common stories into Mm. fantasy that is ultimately very therapeutic and even investigative in its way there's information in what we love and why we love it if i'm taken with uh breaking bad if breaking bad is what gets through there's probably some info there in what i'm trying to sort through as i'm binge watching that thing i think especially in our new season we get to be a little more openly analytical about why we're drawn to this stuff and D my goodness nothing creates um community quite like that it seems mm-hmm. to me it's just such a a righteous activity so let's dig a little bit into that that phrase that you uh you bring up a lot in your your newest book your your newest book being 
the possibility of America, which I can't recommend enough to oh, people. Thank you. Um, I was just going back through it today, preparing for this, and it it's so dense and, and not in a that can sound bad, but it it every sentence is uh, is worth uh, tweeting. Ah, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, <clears throat> which I well, I'll note that it um, probably got. It's a revised version of an earlier book, mm-hmm. but um, the new version, which is almost completely new sentences, um, a lot of it came through the apparatus of Twitter in mm-hmm. the sense that I'll try a sentence and people like it or people respond to it. There's a sense in which Twitter is part of my editing process because if I've come up with a real zinger, um, I'm probably going to put it into the prose some mm-hmm. way. Um, so thanks for saying that. I hope that's true. It, <laughs> yeah. Twitter was not unrelated to the composing of that book. So you say, uh, this, this line a lot, spirit knows no division. And, um, I'm curious, I don't think I saw in there where, did you pull that from something that specific phrasing or is that uh, your own? I think it is my own, but it wouldn't surprise me if, William Blake or Carl Jung or mm-hmm. Richard Rohr or somebody said something like that, mm-hmm. um, or Parker Palmer maybe. Um, I think it came from wanting to say witness knows no division because witness is my favorite word for getting at the whole of a life or a career or something like that. Your witness mm. is how much you paid your employees and what you did to the environment and how you treated people in addition to the product or whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. Spirit, which is breath, is an, and saying spirit knows no division is a nice way of um, letting a concept like breath, air, and you could go into soul even, anima, that which moves you, it knowing no division again, is a way of, for me, kind of preemptively responding to anyone who wants to say about what I'm doing or saying, ah, well, you see, that's religion there. Or or, that's politics. So the mistake you've made is mixing religion and politics to kind of throw you out of court or um, not give you a hearing. So um, spirit knows no division is intended to challenge the popular distinction between the sacred and the secular, the political, the religious, and the idea of um, this isn't personal, it's just business. (laughs) It's in which business sometimes is the concept is used to avoid um, moral accountability. So spirit knows no division as a saying, I'm trying to overcome all of the oppositional energy that comes when you try to speak meaningfully of things. And um, even down to marketing, I, I think that we let our marketing do our thinking for us. If we speak in an unexamined way about who is uh, Christian, and who's not my mm-hmm. total it's it's I, I hesitate to get into it because i know in one sense i'm getting a little niche in a way but it's also a breakthrough with a word like christian to not give the word christian 
to that which just markets itself as Christian. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going into the weeds now, but spirit knows no division <laughs> is a kind of reminder to self and others that we can always slow the tape and um, rethink our words that we use as weapons sometimes or as ways of excluding people or shutting people down. So I, I just find it to be a handy proverb in a wide variety of contexts. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. I feel like, uh, I don't know. I, it's when I think of the things that I've learned from reading and, and listening to you, I, I feel like that's, it gets at the core of, of a lot of, of, uh, what you talk about and in a really helpful way. Uh, so thank you for that. Oh, no problem. I, I know one little anecdote that I share in that regard, and this maybe takes us back to the Hulk and pop culture, is I drew a picture of Godzilla once, and my grandmother walked in the room, and uh, I wrote Godzilla on it, and I showed it to her, and she looked at it and said, there's only one God. <laughs> It's just such a strange thing. I mean, it was maybe strange for me to draw Godzilla, but that she was kind of, in a mild way, she was lovely in her way, but she was kind of crushing the spirit of a child by saying, God's what's important, and this doesn't have anything to do with God. I Mm. have available to me, spirit knows no division in that Mm -hmm. moment. But I think an awful lot of what I'm bringing is to kind of reassert our fellow creatureliness into every conversation when people are getting high-minded over, uh, you know, whatever the topic might be. I think that uh, that idea that you say in the book, you say religion is politics, is what we do and yeah. how we speak and the way that we think about other human beings. Um, and I think that's super helpful. But for me, it also goes beyond that to something like what you're saying with the the picture where, uh, like the division between high and low culture yes, um, <clears throat> isn't helpful. Um, and you, I, I love the way in the book, you have a bunch of quotes and you're just addressing different cultural uh, writings and other things. And, you know, you'll have uh, something from, you know, really quote high culture right next to, to something very mm-hmm. pop or low. And That's my signature move. I love yeah, it. It's great because it, I think anytime you start breaking those things down, you like you're having these little these little epiphanies, these little um, moments of connection. Uh, and I'm very into the idea that everything is related, everything is connected, um, not just related, but relating. Um, yeah, I will throw in as it, an example to your point. I was watching a zombie film, and um, as is often the opening scene in a zombie film you have um things are going crazy people don't know what's happening um officials and news reporters are trying to get a handle on it Mm -hmm. and the an official a mayor or a governor is quoted saying of this one instance of cannibalism and this one instance of illness there's no these two events aren't connected (laughs) these are not related phenomena and I wrote that down on a napkin or something when I heard it. And then I flipped it and said, there are no unrelated phenomena. Mm. Like spirit 
knows no division. It was, it's just this little problem. Um, all phenomena on some level are related. And when we want to say that doesn't have anything to do with this, that's the oppositional energy that clouds vision, I want to say. Yeah, so there's an example of allegedly low culture giving me, you know, a possibly perceived as high-minded phrase that mm -hmm. kind of guided me to the next paragraph. <laughs> That's great. I'm fascinated by the way that you engage people and topics on Twitter because I feel like you, your voice there is very unique um, in that you are uh Fierce, in a sense, um, very unflinching in how you'll talk about something, but uh, there's a gentleness at the same time. I don't know if that's the right word either, but like there's a calling out without a judging. Yeah, um, I hope so. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if th there's a better way to get at that. Um, but how do you think about those things when you're trying to walk that line? Okay, thank you. Um, that's a really good question. I, um, I will note with Twitter that I stumbled into it when uh, I have an age, a literary agent who works with me on some of my books to mm -hmm. a deal kind of thing. And when Twitter arrived, at least it, I became aware of it maybe in 2008 or 2009, it was just a matter of like, secure your platform like if you want mm -hmm. daviddark.com now is a chance to make twitter you'll have your own little handle and it took me a while to realize what was going on but i realized that i could talk to people i could ask stephen keeg a question mm -hmm. um which is just amazing to me i i guess for all of my life i could have gotten hold of stephen king's um mailing address and sent him something but this is a moment where we can all kind of, it's a public bulletin board, mm -hmm. I think of it. And I will note that people who only treat it as a promotional tool, as in, um, here's my, I'm doing this, here's my book coming out, or tune in as I appear on this show, that's fine. But that that's kind of shocking to me that people do that because it's so, it's such a narrow use of an interesting tool. Mm -hmm. um, I want to be respectful, but I think I am emboldened by my mother and Walt Whitman and maybe the Holy Spirit to really believe that we are all created equal in some sense. Mm -hmm. um, and snobbery, like how dare you ask that question who do you think you are? Those mm -hmm. are all um, things that kind of get at me. The idea that someone who is famous or, or more powerful um, should not be expected to respond to someone um, of a different status or something. Mm -hmm. um, that's going to get my dander up a little bit. I, I'm going to want to take that on. So I, I do think, especially when we're dealing with folks who lead churches or are elected officials or who flex in various ways that are consequential for the rest of the world, 
that it's really appropriate um, to put questions to them. Maybe heckle if heckling can be a form of affection. And I think that heckling can be not just a form of affection, but a form of um, public responsibility. So I want to be respectful. I don't want to get anyone fired and I don't want to get anyone into trouble. Um, but if you're going to put your voice out there, I think you need to be answerable to other people who are just as morally serious or trying to be as morally serious mm -hmm. as you are. And it can get dicey. I guess I'll throw in, too, on that judgment question. I see how I could have gotten, I'm 50 years old, and I see how I could have been paid well in my 20s or 30s to be a particular version of myself. And then in order to keep getting paid well or to get paid more, I just keep on being that person mm -hmm. as a minister, a Democrat or a Republican. If I was in that spot, I would want people to remind me that I don't just have to be what sells or what mm -hmm. is clicking in some sense. So I do, it, it's crazy turning 50 because I, I found myself identifying myself as a 50-year-old and entertaining the possibility that at least sometimes I might know something that other people don't know and that I can, I can lean into that a little bit. I still feel like a teenager. I feel like a child. But I felt a little more cocky in, um, when I realized that I'm older than Ted Cruz and Ben Sass and lots of folks who have power over us. Um, I've had a little fun referring to people a little younger than me as young man, especially when they have <laughs> power. Mm -hmm. um, so that's part of what's going on. And there's also just the opportunity to amplify um, voices that I think should be amplified, like a friend that I haven't seen in 10 years um, wrote a poem today and on Twitter said, I thought you'd like this. I'm like, oh my goodness, I do like it. Quote, tweet, you know, retweet. It's just an opportunity. Um, Julian Baker um, has said that punk rock follows the New Testament ethic of the most powerful thing you can do with a microphone is share it with someone else. Mm -hmm. And so there's Julian Baker, the singer, songwriter, who's much younger than me. I took that line and I thought, my goodness, that's true. So I, I like stepping to the microphone. I like speaking into the microphone and I like sharing the microphone. And it's a, a tool slash bulletin board that I find really, really um, helpful. I can get obsessive with it. I can spend more time on it than I need to. But mm -hmm. um, I think that it can be an engine for democracy and a more righteous civilization. So I go for it on the Twitter. Something you were talking about a couple of minutes ago, or a minute or two ago, uh, is you were kind of describing a bit of the uh, metaphor that you have uh, talked about on Twitter, the, the robot soft exorcism, oh my goodness. which I love. Um, 
and it goes, I think that that analogy goes a little further than where you're just taking it with the way that it, um, basically what you talked about where you could have been paid to be in a situation and then continue to be paid to be in that situation and to do those same things, but likening it to being in, inside of a, a giant robot yes. that is possibly crushing things beneath it and wanting if you were in that position wanting someone to invite you out which which i think is so helpful in so many ways because one it gets at i think the way that we can be a part of a destructive system without really recognizing um our responsibility there and the the way that those things are, are unfolding but also recognizing that you are not that machine itself. That's right. And that you can be redeemed out of that. You can be, um, uh, I forget the words that you use on that, but uh, I, I think it's one of the most helpful analogies I've, I've heard in a long time. It's great. Thank you for bringing it up. It's, um, it's personal. Um, I'm from Tennessee. I went to a public school when I was really little, but I went to a private school after that. And the private schools, one of our symbols was a Confederate flag. Hmm. So if you were to um, look through my annuals, um, you could find photographs of me um, with Confederate flags nearby. And um, I'm embarrassed by it. Um, it feels disgraceful. Um, but, and I know that I am a, uh, a creature in history with blinders and, um, white supremacist terror symbols that, um, were not white supremacist terror symbols to me when, um, I was holding them mm -hmm. for a part of my life. Does all that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mentioned that to note that um, the robot thing, the idea of being a human being within a mechanism, it seems pretty great to you because it serves you. Mm. But then you realize that the mechanism is murder or the mechanism is um, serving the perceived health of a few while crushing many or most or others whatever that might be mm -hmm. so it can seem a little silly the being in a robot <laughs> and a human being outside the robot calling up to the eye socket of the robot seeing another human being there and saying hey stop get out but i think that armored self i know i mix <laughs> metaphors now always wants to be seen for something other than the armor. Mm -hmm. And um, I would even argue that every human being is um, an infinitely valuable bearer of the divine image. We are um, sunlight, love, all of that at our core. But from the moment we're out in the world, we feel poked we feel pushed, we feel bullied, and we start putting armor around ourselves. The armor can take the size of a corporation or a government or a nation state or a brand. And um, 
everybody wants to be invited out of their suit of armor slash robot, whatever it might be. And that includes me um, now. Yeah, I'm kind of riffing on what you noted about you got the individual who is paid to be a particular thing, um, but that individual is still a fellow human who um, would maybe like to have a different gig or would maybe like to uh, have a context in which they don't have to sign papers that involve executing people or um, suing people kind of thing. So that part of my mode there is um, viewing every person as someone who, as Thoreau tells us, craves reality and um, trying to figure out ways of getting people to step out from behind the barricade, whatever that might be, because that is what I want of, of others. There's also something interesting in that uh, where I think the thing that makes it most hard to get out of the mechanism mm -hmm. oftentimes is that you have to acknowledge the damage that it has done. Yes. And so I think a lot of times it's easier to stay and pretend that the damage is not being done than to feel the full weight of that. And I think that goes for individuals as well as, um, you know, a nation not That's wanting right. to, you know, a nation has its own mechanism, its own, and it, it doesn't want to reckon with the damage that it's done. No. And reckoning with it, acknowledging it is a career is career death. Possibly mm. if you not all of our presidents, everyone who's run for president and one has had to, buy into American exceptionalism and the, the myth of American innocence, the idea that America, why were we attacked? Because people just don't know how good we are. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's an interesting argument, but the idea that we're not um, responsible and complicit in um, tragedy, um, whether it's slavery or dropping a bomb on a city or any there's this thing where we don't and i love what you did there with it can be a nation but it can also be a company or a brand or a um a marketing scheme of some sort we often don't want to look at the damage we're doing and we would rather um buttress our denial mechanism further so as to avoid um recognition and the recognition, to use an old word, that might lead to repentance, to um, changing the arrangement we've made with the world and other people. Yeah. Do you feel like that's connected to part of why you gravitated and, and still gravitate towards uh, the weird or the strange or the disturbing, uh, that maybe that's a way to get through that armor? Absolutely. Um, the writer Shannon Hale says something like, if we don't tell strange stories, when something strange happens, we won't believe it. Like we have to keep it weird. Hmm. We have to listen to strange stories. Otherwise, we gloss over the truly strange things 
for the truly problematic things that are happening. So the Twilight Zone, I guess now Black Mirror, all of those kind of odd tales, or Orwell, 1984, the odd tales that kind of get at what we're hiding. That is my thing, <laughs> generally. Um, I do believe that the whole of culture, or that which we call culture, is a kind of crime scene and lots of voices, lots of songs, lots of people um, have been bulldozed over because they don't fit the official version of American history or mm -hmm. sea history or the history of country music or any of these things. So I'm looking for that which is hidden, that which has been silenced. Yeah, in the hope of avoiding being someone who history will judge as a kind of monster, as having been morally reprehensible. And I just, I love when human beings are their freest, most neighborly selves. So there's, there's a um, beloved community is the concept that I try to lift up in the book. I think that any weird true story is good news for beloved community because it invites us to kind of come out of hiding. And um, that is kind of my jam, it seems. Speaking of those who have been silenced, uh, you've been... Uh, a champion for a uh, reality winner. Mm -hmm. um, would you mind talking about that a little bit and why that specific story has become something that you've uh, gravitated towards and, and wanted to uh, repeat and, yes. and get out there? Well, having taught high school English for many years, and I teach college now, reality winner, um, Decker, um, yeah, it's kind of hard. I'll just jump in. Decorated Air Force veteran who eventually worked for, uh, was an NSA contractor. And um, around the time, and when I say decorated Air Force veteran, I'll mention as well, because this is complicated, that she worked on the drone program. Mm -hmm. And the drone program is a, a very problematic and or understandable part of our military mechanism where um, terror suspects are taken out with little or no risk to um, American soldiers. But it's messy and it's unaccountable. And it is a form of terror if you're a farmer in Afghanistan or Yemen and out of the sky you are um, your mother, daughter, brother, whoever is just struck dead and visited by the United States government, maybe somewhere down the line, but we're not um, the apparatus of um, war crimes is not really at work in something like the drone program. I have to note that that is part of Reality Winner's past. And she got out of that and um, became an NSA contractor. And around the time that James Comey was fired by President Trump. And around the time that President Trump was in the Oval Office with representatives of Russia's government gloating 
over um, the firing of James Comey. Um, Reality Winner, working as an NSA contractor, had some information that she leaked to The Intercept that later served to prove um, Russian interference, Putin interference in the 2016 election. From there, she was charged under the Espionage Act, and she has been muzzled and incarcerated for almost three years. So here is U.S. military, decorated veteran, um, locked up. Our government stole her Bible as well. That feels like, oh, wait, what does that have to do with anything? Well, America's supposedly big on religious liberty and Bibles. But here, this veteran, um, while Michael Cohen has been released, Paul Manafort has been released, mm-hmm. and lots of people who definitely betrayed the country and were shown to betray the country in court are free. Reality winner is denied the right to speak to anyone. And her own, um, she's medically vulnerable as well. And she's essentially been disappeared. One reason that draws my attention is because no elected official has been willing to acknowledge her existence, um, with the possible exception of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. President, not president, but former Vice President Biden hasn't said anything. Um, Donald Trump mentioned her in a tweet, but he didn't say her name. He referred to her as, hey, she's small potatoes. Why is she in jail when crooked Hillary's out. And it was just interesting that he would reference her to take a shot at Hillary, but even the president wasn't willing to say her name. Um, So I've corresponded with her a bit. I'm in communication with her mother. She is in a facility in Texas where someone has already died of the coronavirus. It's just so strange to me that she has slipped through the cracks of all of these famous people, pundits, preachers and politicians who don't want to touch her story. So Twitter is one of those places where I've tried to advocate for because she doesn't. um, She's serving a three-year sentence. Um, No, excuse me. I believe it's a five-year sentence. And her life is in danger, but she wasn't sentenced to die. It's awfully odd. It's suspicious. It's um, shocking that... um, So many people who committed crimes are being treated with leniency, but she is being crushed under the boot of the government that we, the people, are responsible for, which is why I like to say, I don't want to say exactly that Trump's done it or Nancy Pelosi's done it any less than I have, because every elected official um, is my responsibility. And what our government has done to her is my responsibility. So, um, yeah, I look for the overlooked people. And um, when I can, I try to weigh in. What do you say to, because I feel like the common response I've seen is, well, she shouldn't have, she shouldn't have done that. Like, yeah. And that's, that's just what she gets. That works. Um, Mike Flynn and Paul Manafort and Michael Cohen shouldn't have done what they did. Mm-hmm. She has served more than half of her sentence. She admitted wrongdoing, which um, a lot of these other figures, these elderly white men, haven't. I think that she should be shown clemency. Um, She took responsibility. And um, we have a man in charge right now 
who arguably has never taken responsibility for anything. And I think that our country owes it to her, maybe if you like, in view of her service in the military, to um, get her home to her mother, where she can serve out her sentence in a different way. But for her to be denied the right to protect herself um, from COVID in a room in Texas, while just today Michael Cohen went home to his apartment in Manhattan or wherever, um, that doesn't work. Um, it doesn't work, it would seem to me, for most Americans. But again, she has been, um, yeah, somehow, um, and, and I think it does have something to do with her name, to even say reality winner is to sound like fake news, is to sound like mm -hmm. you're perpetuating disinformation somehow. But yeah. I think sometimes the complex, nuanced story is something that we steer clear of for fear of avoiding conflict. That is true. We're a bit allergic to nuance, and there's a bunch of it in that story. Yes, um, there is. So that's hard. I wanted to talk a little bit about... Uh, I feel like you speak about truth a lot, uh, and especially in in the possibility of America. Um, and I find a lot of times the truth can be the most problematic of, uh, these three transcendentals, mm. uh, because of the way that it gets linked to our desire for certainty. Yep. Um, and I know that's played out in my life in, in various ways. And, but, I think the way you talk about it, um, it, it cuts to the root of why uh, valuing the truth is necessary for holding on to goodness and beauty. Can you dig into that a, a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say that I'm a learner of truth, um, but I'm not a knower of truth. I mean, I hope I am, but I don't want to claim <laughs> that. I'm a learner of truth. I seek truth, but I'm not the copyright owner of truth. I would never argue that I have truth and um, the person that I'm arguing with is only grasping at delusion or something like that. Similarly, mm -hmm. with God, I am a learner of God, I believe. I'm a learner of love and beauty, but I'm not, I do kind of think I know beauty when I see it. But mm -hmm. um, a little like Socrates, who I'm trying to model, I am a uh, I am seeking wisdom. I, I'll, I'll get back to truth, but I'll note of wisdom okay. that a philosopher is someone who loves wisdom. And um, I hope that I'm a philosopher. Mm. But I would never call myself a philosopher any more than I would call myself a Christian, because that would be the height of impropriety to me. A philosopher is someone who wants to know what's true more than they want to win an argument or defeat the opposition or all of that. So I would call myself an aspiring philosopher rather than claiming it. That's what I am. I believe that the truth is out there as, you know, yes, files <laughs> maintain and that truth, there is reality, but I borrow from uh, Errol Morris, um, the filmmaker who said of, um, Orwell's 1984, that in 1984, truth wasn't absent, 
It's just denied. Hmm. Truth isn't absent in North Korea, but it is denied. You are not allowed to criticize um, the government in North Korea um, publicly without being incarcerated, tortured, or killed. In communist China, um, truth is there, but it is often denied by the party. And we had a doctor in China, I say we, that we would be the human species. We had a doctor in China named, and forgive me, anyone who hears this and thinks you're mispronouncing his name, but I believe his name is Dr. Li Wen Lang. And Dr. Li Wen Lang, against what the party was saying, told the truth about the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And um, he got in trouble for that. And before he died, of the coronavirus, he was forced to renounce his own truthful findings under hmm. penalty of torture or his family being in trouble. So he denied truth in order to avoid um, repercussions, but word got out and eventually the Chinese Communist Party had to apologize after he died. The Chinese Communist Party had to apologize to his family publicly, because everyone knew what was true. Hmm. And in that tiny little way, fat lot of good it did to him, he's gone. But in that tiny way, truth was acknowledged by the party. Yeah. So in our own day, I think we have lots of people who know what's true. But there are people who, in order to avoid losing their spot in the Senate, or their place on camera during a daily briefing, or um, their spot on a radio show. They're denying what's true. They're pretending to not know what's true in order to keep their jobs or their spot. But truth, the truth is out there. We are knowers, we are learners of it. If I hear a voice in my head saying truth is relative, to which I wanna say truth is relative to our ability to discern it. Mm. And, it, and it is relative to who's speaking, but, but there is truth. And um, we learn it, we lift it up, we seek it. And, and if the only thing we're willing to acknowledge is true, is that which makes our team look good, or our country look good, or our past statements line up, um, we aren't really lovers of truth. We're, we like a good smoke screen, and we acknowledge what we feel like we can afford to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, this is one of my favorite lines in the book. It says, um, the new seriousness is the habit of wanting to know what you don't want to know before mm. it's too late. Um, I haven't thought of that sentence in a while. I'm sorry that I'm reveling in it. But the that's seriousness great. is wanting to know what you don't want to know before it's too late. I'm I'm pretty happy with that. I think that's pretty uh, it's it's piercing uh it because there is so much you don't want to know and you you can feel the edge of that tug in you yeah uh and it's very easy to i mean that's it's a painful place to start pulling at so it's very easy to just like smooth it over and feel like i don't know it i don't know it and i'm <laughs> i'm not even gonna think about not wanting to, to know it yeah um but that 
that that um, is the root of this kind of moral seriousness. Um, and then the, the rest of that sentence is also amazing. Um, you say, because sin, as I understand it, is active flight from a lived realization of available data. Uh, yeah. And I think that that's so helpful because it, I think sin can be a, I mean, a really unhelpful word for a lot of people in mm-hmm. the context that they have um, heard it and it's been used as a weapon against them. And But I, I find that to be, um, that definition cuts through all of the, the pretty ways that we kind of build up barricades to, to keep from seeing our own sin and keep others from, from seeing it. This idea that's, that's internal. That's you saying, I have this information and I'm, I'm not going to act on it. Yeah. Um, oh, that's helpful. Yeah. Cause we uh, know, and there it is. It's available. Um, yeah, that, we're going uh, uh, to deny. And I'll say the new seriousness is the old seriousness. Like what we, you can read it in Spinoza or played or the old songs. I mean, we know, mm. we know, and we, yeah, the work of wanting to know what you don't want to know. Thank you for putting those two sentences next to each other and putting them before me again, because I did oh. give those words a lot of thought. And I totally, I don't, I'm almost afraid to say it because sin, as you note, is, has served as a very toxic concept with which people have been made to deny their own intuition and have been made to feel um, like they're not enough or that they need someone else to tell them what's true. So there's a sense in which what I wrote there was the only definition of sin that I'm okay with if we're even going to use the word. It's like, I get Mm. it if you never want to hear the word sin again. But if we're looking for a possibly helpful de- definition mm-hmm. it's active flight from a real lived realization of available data yeah um, yeah thank you for risking lifting that word up <laughs> or instead yet again it might be good for something sin well yeah i think sometimes uh there's letting a concept sit in a state of unhealth or in toxicity yep. is not as helpful as trying to rework that concept or that way of thinking or that culture, whatever it is, yeah. like redeeming the thing I think is, is um, usually more powerful uh, and more helpful in the end. Well, that's the thing with God too. I, I'm in Nashville. Um, so I'm in the thick of the prayer trade. I like to say, and often, <laughs> Often people will uh, lose their faith and Instagram about it, and uh, and I get it. But sometimes when I'm talking to folks who do that, I say, did you lose your faith or is this a rebranding? Because it's okay if it's a rebranding. It's okay if you're switching it up. But um, often when people say, I don't believe in God, I want to say, well, tell me the God you don't believe in, and I'm probably with mm-hmm. you on that. Yeah. Um, so, like a word like sin, a word like God, it's because they have a particular meaning. Um, yeah, I, I think the better move is to rework it, redeem it, rethink it, 
So it isn't just a toxic concept that only hurts self and others. Hey, everyone. If you're already supporting the show through Patreon, thank you so very much. If you aren't yet, I wanted to let you know that you can now become a patron and support the show for as little as $5 a month. Becoming a patron can provide you with a variety of perks, including access to additional content like song lyric breakdown episodes, Q&A episodes where you can submit questions for me to answer, additional conversation episodes that won't show up in the public feed, and access to our Discord board where we're building community and engaging in deeper conversations around the show. Here's a sneak peek at some additional patron-only content. That's an interesting question, the, the self-talk or inner dialogue. I think, for one, it was like, uh, there was like two days where it was kind of debilitating the weird kind of introspection that went on as I came to grips with being pretty sure about this. Um, and I was thinking, like, I don't know how to describe it. You know, how like if you, sometimes you might be like introspective about what you're doing. I was like a level deeper <laughs> into introspection though. So I was like two steps removed from reality, thinking about thinking about everything that I was doing or feeling. Um, and I was really worried that was going to continue, but uh, that did not. That was more just a, kind of a reorienting. And then I realized, hey, you're okay. You've always been this way and you're fine. So you don't need to overanalyze it, but it does give you different tools uh, when you have some kind of understanding um, sometimes of, of an issue um, and some maybe more grace for yourselves and for yourself and uh, an opportunity to challenge yourself in different ways so for me I think sometimes it means giving myself permission to like take a break from a social situation that might be um, kind of hypercharged for me uh, and overwhelming. Uh, other times it's being in that situation and acknowledging how I'm feeling and taking some deep breaths. Um, and that understanding of what's kind of going on with me and that it's okay that I feel that way um, can be, I think, a lot more healthy than just feeling overwhelmed but not really being able to take a little step outside of that and uh, acknowledge it. Yeah, so I think I think it's almost been part of a larger change in self-doc and inner dialogue where I just have more understanding of myself and for myself. If you're digging this podcast and want to join me and others like you in our pursuit of the good, the true, and the beautiful, then joining us on Patreon is the best way to do it. Sign up today at patreon.com forward slash carry the fire pod. All right, let's get back to the show. I've got some questions peppered in here from uh, some of the patrons of my show uh, and Okay. Uh, one one patron, Brian, uh, was saying, uh, he says, in, in, in interviews where you discuss uh, pop culture and its connection to liturgy, you've also referenced the concept of righteousness, which you brought up, I think, twice in our conversation so far. 
Uh, so he says, do you see righteousness as connected to the good, the true and the beautiful? Uh, and if you, and if yes, where would you draw any distinctions? So maybe just get at what you, it's a good contrast to, uh, talking about sin, like what, Absolutely, what is yeah. right, righteousness? Yeah. Thank you, Brian, for this. Um, probably wasn't until I was in my thirties that the word righteous, I wasn't even willing to say it because I thought righteous is always God, Jesus, this kind of impossible thing. Then mm -hmm. I start listening to all kinds of music and there's a moment I, oh, it's embarrassing that I can't paid in full a song. I can't remember who it is because I'm righteous. Can you hear this in your head? Paid in full. Rakim. Um, B and Rakim. Look it up. Yeah, it's Eric B and Rakim. There's a moment yep. in that song. It's an old song that I'd heard as a teenager. At one point, he says, I'm righteous. And there was a time in my 20s that I would have wanted to say, no, you're not. Nobody's righteous. Mm -hmm. But then I start hearing the word righteous. And I, I just uh, skip to it within the African-American community. And righteous among people of color, I found, really refers to right relationship. It's tight. It's right. It's true. And um, when I say righteousness, when I praise the righteousness of an album like To Pimp a Butterfly or something like that, mm -hmm. I am referring to, um, well, I kind of want to say a deep social righteousness. But to even say social righteousness is to suggest that righteousness could ever be anything mm -hmm. than social. Yeah, so yeah. when I say righteous, I mean right relationship, proper, balanced, appropriate, true, um, equitable. Um, yeah, so it is in there with truth. Um, if I speak of the escalating righteousness of someone's career or a person, I don't want to say the righteous cause of reality winner because I I don't think that her participation in the drone program was righteous. Mm. Or my funding of the drone program as a taxpayer as righteous. But I think that her act of conscience when she leaked to the intercept was a righteous move. And I think righteousness happens all the time, every day. I've managed to go all this way without quoting scripture, but the command of Jesus of Nazareth is to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. Lest we mistake somebody's kingdom merely for being powerful as righteous. To seek righteousness is to seek enlightenment, is to seek knowledge, is to seek just relationships. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes. Beauty, truth, righteousness. Um, what's the third one? Beauty, truth, and goodness. Good. Yeah, there you go. I mean, that is righteousness is goodness. I'm looking for it all the time. And I want to amplify it when I find it. Yeah. And one, one of the ways that you do amplify that is you are a music writer at times as well. Um, I love all of the writing that I've seen you do on music because I think it's uh, it goes very deep and it makes a lot of connections. And I think as a musician, <laughs> it's, there's so much bad music journalism, mm. uh, out there. And I generally 
loathe doing interviews because I feel like they are not thoughtful uh, at all. And mm-hmm. I don't know why that is that it's music specific. Maybe it's all journalism, I, but I, I feel like there's something to, it's like, oh, it's just music. Just, you know, you can go out and talk to that guy. And maybe it's part, partly because music is often a spectacle. And mm-hmm. so if you just put a mic in front of certain very charismatic, uh, spectacular people, they're entertaining. Mm. Uh, that is, that is not me. Uh, so I want to have a deep conversation and I feel like your music writing goes there. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I just wanted to talk to you a bit about your, is that a, a passion project for you to like continue to write in music? Because you have, you know, you are a, a, an author, you are a teacher. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'm into it. I love writing about music. Most of my recent opportunities to write about music have come from the writer who, one of my favorite writers, period, Jessica Hopper, um, Mm -hmm. who has worked with lots of different folks. Um, But she called on me when she worked for Pitchfork and then when she worked for MTV News um, to write about Kendrick Lamar and Chance the Rapper and folks like that. Part of the blessing of not writing about music for a living is I can kind of do it the way I want to. And um, I can mostly do it as a form of praise, like Mm. music that I love and get really specific about it. I haven't ever been asked to negate anything. And I think sometimes in that, which passes for music journalism, people are negating because they're doing their own brand as a critic Mm-hmm. They can't afford to affirm stuff. Um, Stanley, this is mixing stuff, but Stanley Kubrick, filmmaker, um, was asked how it felt to watch his films, which are universally praised, always get panned opening weekend. That whenever a Kubrick film would come out, people would just destroy it. And he said, I feel sorry for those folks because they have to form an opinion um, within 48 hours. something that I've been working on for sometimes 10, 12 years. He he wasn't saying all criticism is worthless, but he was noting the position of many uh, film critic or even a music critic in this case. Yeah, I've never been invited to negate something, (laughs) like write about this and tear it down. And my own um, bandwidth and overhead has not required um, dissing things yeah, I want to write more about music. And especially when I get a specific assignment, it's like, give me that. This is going to be a, this is going to be a pleasure. So it's a joy. I'm, I am um, working on a book about you too at present, in okay. which I'm making an argument for them. I mean, they're millionaires. They're fine. <laughs> They've got nothing to worry about, but they are neglected by an entire generation in a way. And I'm trying to make an argument. I think that they would be more beloved if one of them had died in the 90s or if they had closed it up, you know? Mm -hmm. Something about the way they keep going gets on people's nerves. I'm going to try to do a book-length account of what I think they bring to America's self-understanding and their understanding of the history of rock and roll. I'm making an argument for their contribution, not just to music, but as um, sort of mass media poet prophets in their mm-hmm. way. Um, again, which is a hard 
case to make because they're rolling in it, but I'm going to try to lift them up in a book. So writing about music is very much on my mind because that's something I'm working on right now. I also enjoy all, all the little, uh, I think I'm picking up little Easter eggs hidden in your non-music writing mm. of lyrical snippets. Oh things yeah. That, I love uh, it. I noticed some Radiohead ones in the book. Uh, I I think Big Fish Eat the Little Ones. Oh, yeah. Uh, Fake Empire. Is that a national That's reference? Right. Or that... That's the national. Okay. <laughs> national is my favorite band, so uh, I was yeah, I'm I'm really, really excited. Yeah, I'm really national, too. Uh, have you seen them live? I have not. I want to badly. Uh, it's fantastic. It's really, really fun. Uh, I actually got to see... Have you seen the, the film that goes with their newest record? I have not. Oh, man. Is it pretty great? That, that that's on your to do list now. It's it's gorgeous. It's okay. really really lovely. Um, I got to see it kind of premiered before they played stuff from that record before it was out. Had no idea. Just went to the show and there was no opener. They just walked out. We're like, hey, we're gonna play this film. I'm gonna play all the music from it, and um, it's it's really beautiful. Yeah, it's kind of a weird project. They like the music is not the soundtrack to the film. The film is not the music video to the thing, but they're all connected. And the producer, the director of the film ended up being the producer of the record. And uh, mm. so interesting. really interesting. Yeah. Actually, I, I also wanted to get your brief take on David Bazan, because I know you're a big fan and I feel like he's going to be on the, the pod at some point, but I feel like he's one of the most underrated, um, musicians out there right now um i think the other day you said that he was uh fred rogers for adults i think so <laughs> i, I do think that was so. fantastic and i think i think that'd be hard to see maybe if you just were looking at the music but if you experience listening to him talk at any uh at any length uh you you definitely get that feeling of a deep love and compassion for all people and and a a seriousness and kind of a fearlessness to to say things that that other people wouldn't say that's right absolutely and really just one of the most conscientious people i know period i think people project on his music has um an effect on people and he represents something for people and I think sometimes when people think where they would have to be emotionally to have the nerve to say and sing some of the things he does, they they think I, they would have to be mean or mm. um, bold or not care. And um, that is an error. <laughs> I, I mean, that might be true for them, but it is not meanness or uh, anything in the way of an oppositional spirit in him that drives him to write and do what he does. Yeah. And he's, he's just laying, he's giving people and himself permission to say what he sees and to try to, and it's such a great storyteller too. I, I really, um, I don't know that he's, I, I have noted lately, especially after the latest Pedro the Lion album that you could do a kind of, uh, Netflix series 
entirely based on the lives of characters that show up in his songs. <laughs> that there's there's enough there that you could maybe do two seasons. And um, well, I want him to be more famous because I know that would. Uh, uh, he's very transparent about this. It would mean fewer financial stresses in his yeah. life. So yeah, I'm I'm quite the fan, and I do think that in whatever future we're looking at, he he will be remembered as a kind of pioneer of human seriousness, um, both for people inside and outside of the thing that it's called church. He is a gift to to that tradition and the larger tradition I'm trying to describe that is beloved community. Can I ask you one more patron question? Sure, sure. That's all right. Matt uh, is asking, he says, some of the most fruitful conversation I have had as a pastor with congregants has occurred within the context of a film group study, mm. uh, a film study group. As such, I'm always on the lookout for films that both address difficult issues and are relatively accessible uh, to that audience. Do you have any recommendations? Absolutely. I mean, I could go on and on. Um, a big one right now is Children of Men. Mm. Um, I think that's the one that I, I would recommend with the most um, hardiness. Yeah, just any. I mean, what I love film, you can kind of take whatever was nominated for an Academy Award. You know, the big ones, uh, I, just in the interest of time and space, if you look at all the ones that are nominated each year and work your way back or work your way forward, they're going to be accessible and they're going to be provocative and they're going to be, um, they're going to give you so much room um, for thinking things through. Brazil, kind of an old one from the 80s. <laughs> the Moonlight, certainly. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, just any good film will generate righteous conversation i think when we let it work over us i this is a quick little anecdote but my partner sarah mason um, works at a middle school and a friend of hers walked up realized that films were being talked about and walked up to her with kind of a concerned look on her face and said have you ever seen arrival Mm -hmm. And Sarah immediately said, yeah, I loved it. And then the woman's face changed and she said, I loved it too. But <laughs> the other people, it's, it's back to that weird thing. It's a film that's so good that it sticks in your mind and it will yield insights the more you think about it. Um, I'll, I'll mention that my favorite film that might be too triggering for a film discussion group at a church or it might be just the thing, is Mulholland Drive by David Lynch, which is a film that is about what film does to us. And um, some days that's, that's my favorite film. Joni Mitchell speaks of the star maker machinery behind the popular songs. And I think that that film is about the star maker machinery and what it does in every medium, what it does to the audience, what it does to celebrities, all of that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. it's children of men. And if they can take it, um, Mulholland Drive. That's great. I, I love that you said children of men. I feel like nobody I ever talked to liked that movie. And I, I loved it. No, I, I remember being angry in the parking lot 
over all of the people that I know the movie is for, but who will ignore that movie. Mm. Um, I think it's as good as it gets. And I think it's one such a film for our time. Children of Men. I need to watch it again. Do you have any consistent practices or habits that are helpful for you? I go on long walks with my partner about every day and one long walk, maybe two. Mm -hmm. And um, that's essential. We even do it when it's really cold. I try to read instead of looking at my phone. I try to read paper Mm -hmm. um, before I go to sleep at night. (laughs) <laughs> that's it's a weird but it's a habit that i don't yeah. want the last thing i see to be a screen um so that's just i'm i'm putting a little uh um barrier on electricity by doing that i think i would like to say that i um meditate but i don't <laughs> i think that i will <laughs> um i have but I can't lie and say that I meditate every day or do yoga every day. I do some exercises most days, but I don't yet meditate. I mean, I meditate on things, but I don't give myself <laughs> minute silence. Um, yeah. But I think I will. I think I need to. So I put that out there as something. I also write things down a lot. I usually have paper, and it is good to write stuff down. I'll give a writing prompt too. It is good to write the words I used to think mm. on a piece of paper wow. and then just take it from there. That's great. And if you can't do that, you're probably demon possessed. If there is no, <laughs> if there is no I used to think. <laughs> oh, that's good. All right. Well, David, it was such a pleasure to get to talk to you. Such a pleasure to me. Such a get. Thank you for looking at what I'm doing and quoting me to me, because (laughs) when I don't get that, I I don't know who's paying attention and I get discouraged. So thank Mm, you for giving me the gift of letting me know that you're tuning in. Oh, you're welcome. Um, You also got me into James Kars, and I was able to have him on on the show and... um, quoting a lot of his stuff back to him and he was he was very excited that i was track <laughs> tracking with him I'm i think sure. that, that that book is so so dense and um i don't know how often he gets to just hear from anyone about it and uh he was really excited so it was cool that, i had the same experience it was like he couldn't believe that somebody was still reading the stuff and so yeah thank you for reading james cars i know that that's the book that Whenever I find it, I buy it and I give it away to somebody because as the novelist Richard Powers has said, it's a revolution on every page. Finite and infinite games. Yeah. Uh, I really want to read some of his other stuff. Have you read Breakfast uh, at the Victory? Do you recommend it? I do very much. Um, I also recommend, I think it's called Gospel of the Beloved Disciple. Mm. It is a, it's a gospel 
um, about Jesus. And it's pretty fantastic. Cool. All right, man. Well, thanks again. And, uh, yeah, stay safe. Thank you. I will. Thank you so much for bringing me on. If you have a moment today, it would help a ton if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend. Uh, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at CarryTheFirePod. I want to thank my producer, Andy Lara, and all of our executive producers, Chris Reeves, Tony Panaro, Sam George, Reed Duchess, Thomas Fortcourt, Shamir Hassan, Amy Armstrong, Luis Rivera, Gabe Munoz, Cameron Lane, Hamza Bebehana, Michael Maitland, Adam Collins, Susanna Coleman, Ian Hunt, John Diego, Jess Card, Mark Weiss, Brianna Webb, John Buchan, Denise Sugita, Colin Hawthorne, Brian Weisbecker, Josh Malara, Eric Gonzalez, Matthew Alcon, and Tiffany Payne. Thank you all so much for carrying the fire with me, and I'll see you next time.